and then the other thing is just uh, really concern in my heart um, is what's going on in, in India. And uh, it's in the state of Orissa in the southeastern part of India that there's a lot of persecution going on Christians. It started with, there was a Hindu uh, guy, priest, who was going around and he was trying to reconvert uh Christ followers back to Hinduism. And so he's going from villages. And anyway, uh, somebody, uh, and it was and it, uh, a terrorist identified themselves as the one who did it. It wasn't a Christian, but uh, this Hindu priest was killed. Well, it caused a real uproar, and uh, the people there decided that let's blame this on the Christ followers. And uh, so it's begun uh, at the end of August, and it's just continued. And uh, there's been 14 cities that have faced severe persecution. 57 uh, Christian leaders, pastors, have been murdered. 18,000 people have been injured during attacks. 13 Christian colleges and schools have been destroyed. Over 300 villages have been destroyed. 4,300 houses have been burned. 50,000 people are homeless. And 100, did I already say 130 churches have been destroyed. So, uh, and the other thing that you won't find on the news and most of these things that, that one of our churches that we support in India has told us is that, uh, that this is also class warfare, that it's um, most of the Christians that are being punished, and most of the Christians in India belong to the, well, they're, they're outcasts. They're not even in the caste system. And so uh, it was one more reason, one more excuse to, uh, to try to obliterate these people that are not a part of the social system there in India. So... Um, I know that uh, I'm going to be joining uh, the fast and prayer for this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, I won't be able to join on Friday night, but uh, just let, let you know, um, if you'd like to join me in prayer, Tuesday morning I'll be down at the prayer gallery from 6 to 7 a.m., and uh, so if you'd like to pray with me and pray with others, come on down. Uh, and then Thursday morning, I meet with a group of guys, and we're going to meet at the prayer gallery, 6.45 to 7.45 a.m. And so if you'd like to join us, uh, please do. So, all right, Sermon on the Mount. And we're coming to the very end, the conclusion. And we've been looking at Jesus' uh, message, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is where he's been describing uh, this, what he envisions for his people, what he envisions his people to be. And in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, we covered the Beatitudes, uh, which is, uh, he's describing the nature and character of his followers. And he gives a portrait of, of them in this, in the Beatitudes. And then he describes the reaction that we'll get from the world if we do possess these qualities, that, and, and that, that we are to remain, uh, he doesn't want us to uh, segregate ourselves from the rest of the world, but he wants us to remain salt and light, uh, the, the, the flavor and colors of God in this world. And then Jesus told and tells his followers that his teaching is a fulfillment of the law. It's not an abolishment of it. And that they're to know and live the heart of the law. Uh, they're to be different from the world uh, and the Pharisees. And then he describes living always in the presence of his father, whether in private or in public. And Jesus teaches how Christ's followers are to know that they live under God's judgment and the measure that, that they use will be used against them. Well, all that yardstick will be put up to us. And all this is overwhelming. You know, when, when you hear this all in one setting, which Jesus was, he went up on a mountainside, sat down as his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying this. And then he gets up at the end when he's finished and everybody goes, oh, wow, that was amazing. But hearing all this at one time would be quite overwhelming. And, I, and, and Jesus knew that. 
And so when people were saying, man, how am I to live this? How am I how to do this? And well, Jesus tells them, he says, well, you, you need grace, so ask for it. You know, ask, it'll be given to you. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. And I will give you the Holy Spirit, enable you to do these things. So, and then he sums it all up with the golden rule, which tells us that all the law and the prophets uh, teach us that we're to have concern for our neighbors. We're to love them. And the big idea behind loving your neighbor is that you have to love God first because it's impossible to do. And to love God and your neighbor, you see, the self has to be out of the way. And again, that's been an underlying theme that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus really confronts the self. But also we see that this is all about, this teaching is on relationship to the Father. And that really this is teaching for followers of Christ and those who, are, who have already experienced uh, the upside down effect of grace and how it turns our worlds around. So now we've gone through all the way uh, through midway through chapter 7 and we come to a point where Jesus is pretty much done with his teaching. And the rest of his speaking is really just his conclusion. And, he, and it's kind of his, well, you know, what are you going to do with that now? You know, from verses 13 to 27, Jesus is basically saying and asking, what is your, what, what is your reaction going to be to what I've just told you? What's your reaction? And he tells us in these verses that these words in his sermon are not just to be admired, but they're to be lived. And he illustrates this with two roads, two fruits, and two houses. And he brings it down to an either-or decision. And I know a lot of us don't like those kind of decisions. We like options, don't we? We like options here in America. But it's, it's, not, it's not the best sales pitch, but it's Jesus himself telling us this. It's coming down to an either-or decision. And Jesus begins by telling his followers that following him and putting into practice his words is a narrow way. It's a narrow way. And the thing about this narrow way is it is immediately narrow right from the start because it starts with a narrow gate, a narrow entrance, like a turnstile to a baseball game or to going down into the subway. It's one at the time. And his way continues to stay narrow all the way to the finish. It's not just the little gate. It's not the little turnstile, but it's the path all the way through from beginning to end stays narrow. There's only one thing that fits through the gate, that little turnstile. It's you. It's the only thing that fits through, one at a time. You try to drag your bags with you and all your luggage, your, what you're carrying with you through this life, it just won't fit. And there'll be certain things left behind. The big thing that's left behind is the crowd. When a person becomes a Christ follower, he or she leaves the crowd behind. The Christian life is not a popular life. It is unusual. It's exceptional. It's strange. It's different. You won't be able to take the crowd with you through the turnstile. You'll have to leave the way of the world, the way of the crowd behind you. And I'm not talking about becoming a monk or becoming a nun. You know, people can live isolated but still have a spirit of worldliness about them. We all know that. So that's not what I'm talking. That's not what Jesus is talking about here either. You see, this narrow gate and way is leaving the spirit and leaving the way of the world behind you. It's a radical break from the world and living an entirely different type of life. You see, the self, or as the Bible calls it, the old man or the old nature, is left outside the gate because it has no place in the kingdom of God. It has no place there. So there are things left behind entering this narrow gate. 
And there's not only a narrow gate, but there's a narrow way beyond this gate. And it is a difficult road sometimes. It is difficult. It's a fight of the faith all the way to the end. And there's going to be subtle temptations that you have to be on guard from beginning to end. You see, the narrow way is an invitation and a call to action. Jesus commands and exhorts you to enter, enter the gate. It is something that demands decision and commitment from each of us. You know, Jesus doesn't say, eh, consider me, eh, admire me. He didn't say that, what does he say? He says, follow me. It's action. It's an adventure, an excitement. And you're going down a narrow road. And you've been invited to be a part of that. The invitation and a call to action leaves us with a question, though. And here's the question. Have I committed myself to this way of life? Have I really done that? Am I going to give myself totally to it, come what may? Will I act upon what Jesus has told me and follow him no matter what the consequences? Have you made that kind of decision and entered that narrow gate? You see, once you've looked at the truth and you've decided to do something about it, you have to seek this straight gate, this narrow gate. Jesus says that because the gate is straight and the way is narrow, few that find it. Few find it. Why is that? My wife has talked about this with me. This is the, the one verse that she just hates in the Bible. It's not that she doesn't, she doesn't agree that it's true. It's just that she, it disturbs her because she feels like she's on the losing team instead of the winning team. Why can't I be on the team that has lots of people going down the path, you know? But why is that? Why is it few that find it? Because there are few who seek it. There are few who seek it. You see, this is a gate which must be sought deliberately. You just don't stumble upon it by accident. You can't nod your head in agreement with the Sermon on the Mount, but never do anything about it. See, once you've decided to enter and you've sought the straight gate, you then commit yourself to continuing along this way this narrow way. You remind yourself who you are. You consider the destination where this narrow way is going to lead you. You see, a person who never considers their destination is considered a fool. That's what the Bible describes them as. Think about your destination, where you're going. You remind yourself of that, that yes, this is worth it, going down this narrow way. You see, to not enter the straight gate means that you're already on the broad way. You're already on the broad path. You see, if we're not for him, we're against him. And that's not a political campaign slogan. Jesus said that himself. It's, it's Luke eleven twenty three. It won't be on the screens, but it's Luke eleven twenty three. If you want to write it down, look it up. I didn't make it up. Jesus said it himself. The narrow way, narrow way, biggest way, the biggest thing about entering the straight gate and the narrow road is that there's someone on the road ahead of you. That's the joy you got to look forward to. To enter this way is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It's, it's not thinking about the sacrifices and the sufferings. It's thinking about being with him and the reality that we really lose, lose nothing and we gain everything when we follow him. Everything is rubbish compared to Jesus. Following after him. See, Jesus is talking about the narrow way. And he's saying, my people are the people who want to follow me and are striving to do so. They often fail. They often fall into temptation. 
but they're still in the way. You see, walking on the narrow way doesn't mean that we don't mess up. But it's the expression of our desire, our commitment, our decision, our thirst to be like him, and our hunger to walk with him. Then Jesus says, wide is the gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When someone asked Jesus if only a few would be saved, you know what Jesus said? Not in the Sermon on the Mount, but another time, someone asked him this. Jesus looked at them and told them plainly, strive to enter the narrow gate. Jesus didn't answer the question directly, did he? Strive to enter the narrow gate. You know what he's saying? Leave that question to God. God alone knows, and it's not our business to discover how many will be saved. Our business is to strive and to enter to make certain that we're through that narrow gate and we're on the narrow way. That's, that's what we should be thinking about. Now, after this, Jesus gives us two special warnings about obstacles for those who are going to try to enter the straight gate and walk the narrow way. And so this is something we, our ears should perk up to. We go, okay, because I'm wanting to be on this narrow way. I'm wanting to walk with Jesus. I'm wanting to follow him. And so there's going to be some obstacles. What's going to come my way? I want to be ready. Well, here he goes. He says the first danger is listening to false prophets. Listening to false prophets who always seem to like to stand right outside the straight gate. That's where they like to hang out. And if you listen to them, they'll persuade you not to enter. They will. So Jesus gives a description of these false prophets so that we can avoid them. And what do they look like? Well, it's not the obvious. You see, there's not much trouble recognizing someone who denies the deity of Jesus, who denies that he's the son of God or teaches that we should doubt the existence of God. It's, it's, it's not as obvious as someone saying uh, Jesus' miracles never happen. That's not true. It's not that obvious. That's easy. That's nothing subtle about that. But Jesus gives us a picture of false teachers wearing sheep's clothing, which tells us that they look all right. They look all right. And no one suspects anything at first. Kind of sneaky. Kind of subtle. You see, the false teacher in sheep's clothing is probably a nice guy. Nice gal. Probably pleasant. Appears to be a Christ follower. Seems to say the right things. He or she talks about God. Talks about Jesus, the cross, and the love of God. And seems to say everything a Christ follower should say. So how do you recognize the wolf in sheep's clothing? How do you do that? Well, it's not so much what they say, but it's what they don't say. It's not so much what they say, it's what they don't say. You see, there's no straight way. There's no narrow way or narrow gate in their talk, in their speech, in their words. There's nothing offensive in their message to natural man. And usually their message is always comfortable and comforting. The false prophet teacher will rarely tell you anything about holiness, righteousness, justice, or the wrath of God. You see, the wolf never mentions those things at all. He didn't want you to know those things. The wolf will never speak of the final judgment and eternal destiny like the apostle spoke of when he witnessed to Governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla. I mean, he was trying to convince and talk with these people, and he talked about these things that we, we say are scary. Paul, don't you know that's a wrong witnessing technique? You need to go back to evangelism training school. 
Well, there it is, the Apostle Paul doing it. But the wolf doesn't speak of the terribleness of sin. He doesn't talk about mankind's fallen nature, that humans are lost and depraved without God. The wolf will not tell you that you're dead in your sins. And though he or she may speak of the cross, they'll never tell you that the only way our sins can be forgiven is through the cross and that Jesus was punished in our place, that he was made sin for us. See, the wolf will never tell you about repentance or that you should examine your souls. The wolf in sheep's clothing will never tell you to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. See, the false teacher will never tell you the necessity of entering the straight gate and walking the narrow way. And they'll never tell you about fighting the good fight of faith or ever see the need for you to ever put on the full armor of God. The wolf will never tell you that there is a way that leads to destruction. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the friendliness of these subtle people in sheep's clothing. And I know sometimes that just bends us to the ground when you see these people that are beautiful and, and nice and pleasant, but yet they speak or they don't speak what is true. It's hard, but don't be fooled. Jesus says to us not to be fooled by appearances and that you'll recognize them by the fruit. And this is where we get caught. This is where we get distracted. And we get fooled. Jesus says that what is the essence of every person cannot be forever hidden. And that is what's inside a person will eventually be revealed by their fruit. Again, Jesus points to the heart and a changed life within as, as the evidence, a new nature within a person uh, that's given by Christ is evidence of someone who's on, on the straight path. Rebirth cannot be hidden, but neither can a corrupt nature be hidden forever. You see, Jesus taught at another time that the heart overflows and it will come out in a person's speech and actions eventually. So that can't be hidden. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The fruit of the Christ Father will be these character type things that Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, mournful over sin, meekness, hunger for righteousness. The fruit will be like those described in Galatians 5. They'll be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is the kind of fruit that you'll see in genuine Christ followers and not see in the false teachers. Then in verses uh, 21 21 to 23, Jesus goes on and takes this a step further. And he shows us and warns us of the same thing, but not in the false prophets but he warns, it, warns us about it happening inside us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus warns us about the danger of self-deception deluding ourselves so that we never choose the straight gate or walk the narrow way. You see, when you look at these three verses together, Jesus is concerned that we don't rely upon false evidences of salvation to reassure ourselves and say, oh, it's all right. See, not everyone saying, Lord, Lord, what Jesus is saying is, is, is that the right words isn't what it's about. It's what we must mean those things. We've got to mean those things when we say them. It's not a a magic vocabulary that you say and all of a sudden everything's right and you're on the straight path. 
Those who say, Lord, Lord, they may be fervent and excited people, but you know what? Enthusiasm doesn't always mean true spirituality. That's not a sign of someone being real. To prophesy or deliver a spiritual message or to preach or teach doesn't assure salvation and isn't always a sign that someone's on the right path. A person can preach right doctrine in the name of Christ yet remain outside the kingdom. And that's sometimes shocking to us. Like, how could that be? But here's Jesus saying it right here to us. You see, you can see it with, uh, in the Old Testament with Balaam and Saul, these guys who spoke right messages, taught right things, but they weren't with God. The Apostle Paul disciplined himself to not fall into this danger and, and so disqualify his faith. He spoke of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he said, man, if, if I could preach like an angel, if I could produce eloquent speeches and, and I could understand great spiritual mysteries and reveal them to you and, and declare great knowledge to you, if I could do all these things but I don't have love, I am nothing, nothing. And I could be outside the kingdom. All this is useless if I don't have the qualities that make a man a Christ follower. Jesus even mentions people doing miraculous stuff and driving out demons and and says that this isn't assurance of being on the straight path. Now get me straight, I'm not saying that, that miracles don't happen, that there aren't demons, and that those kind of things don't happen. I'm just saying, when you see that kind of stuff, it's not evidence that someone is right with God or on the right path. A person may have power and gifts, but still be lost. Do you realize that? There are folks here in Asheville that practice certain powers and call on certain powers and do very strange things that are very real and is not the power of God. You know, Judas was one who claimed and the, the name of Christ and was sent out among those to uh, drive out demons and teach and preach. And he rejoiced, came back rejoicing at what he did and was amazed, yet he was lost. In Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva used power in Christ's name, but they were outside the kingdom of God. They thought it was really cool that they could use Jesus' name and demons would obey. And they tried it on this one guy. And they, they're you know, getting a reputation in town and I thought it was kind of cool. And, and they tried it on this one guy. And you know what? The demon inside the guy replied, said, you know what? I know Jesus and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you guys are. And he took a hold of this guy and they started wailing wailing on these seven brothers until they were beat to a pulp and running away. So, just because you can throw the name of Christ around and you can have some gifts and you have some powers doesn't mean it's evidence of being on the straight path that you belong to him. Jesus himself later told his followers, false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. There are and there were powers that accomplished amazing things, but they weren't always Christian. God sometimes gave powers to men who did not belong to him so that he might bring about his own purposes. You know, he did this with Pharaoh and his magicians. They were able to do all the tricks uh, that seemed like they were equal to what Moses was doing. But why did God do that? Why did God allow Pharaoh and his magicians, magicians to be able to do that? Because he had a purpose and a plan that he was going to make his name great among the nations and he was going to do it through Egypt and destroying Egypt. He also did it through Pilate. He raised up Pilate and gave him judicial powers and political powers. But Pilate didn't belong to Christ. But God was accomplishing his purposes through Pilate. 
because you had to get his son to the cross and Pilate had to be the one to give the orders. But Jesus warns us repeatedly about this and he tells us to pay no attention to appearances. Pay no attention to the results, the gifts, the wonders, or the miracles performed by individuals. Instead, look at the individual's fruit and whether his or her character conforms to the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you'll know. That's how you know if they're false or true. And it's how you can keep yourself from deception in your own life. Examine your own fruit. Don't rely on your own list of gifts and accomplishments. That's not what makes you close to God. Don't be deceived by others. Don't deceive yourself. And in both, don't examine appearances. Examine the fruit. So, then Jesus comes to his final warning and challenge to apply his teaching. And the challenge, the challenge is to choose to commit yourself to the straight and narrow path. Jesus tells us about two men and two houses. And at first, these two guys look really alike. They and their houses. And, and so you're kind of scratching your head. What's going on here? What's Jesus saying? Really, take a look at how similar they are. They both want the same thing. They want to build a house, don't they? They both thought about the same thing and even wanted the same kind of house in the same neighborhood. I mean, the storm hit the same place, right? They both take some construction classes and they both begin building. The two men in their houses are almost identical. But Jesus tells us this story not so that we can see the similarities. He tells us this story so that we could detect the difference between these two houses and these two guys. Jesus describes a wise man and a foolish man. And the wise man, how he made sure that he had a good foundation. While the foolish man, he didn't even trouble himself with laying a foundation at all. The foolish man is in a hurry and he wants to get quick results. The foolish man doesn't trouble himself to listen to instruction or pay attention to the rules that govern construction. He heard the words, but he ignores them. Foolish man obviously thinks his opinion is best and he doesn't have any, anything to learn from anybody else. Foolish man, in his state of mind, doesn't even think things through or consider the possibilities. But then there's the wise man. The wise man doesn't pretend to be an expert, but he consults those who know. He finds guidance. He finds instruction. He knows he can build a house quickly, but he wants instead to build a house that will last he knows that there's going to be things in his future that are going to test the construction of his house. And as the story goes, Jesus explains that the storm is going to hit both houses. Just because the wise man builds his house upon the foundation doesn't mean he won't be tested in this life or face trials. Folks, just because you get on the straight path, just because you went through the straight gate, just because your life is built in Jesus, doesn't mean that you will not face hardships and trials and difficulties. On the contrary, those things are going to find us all, whether we're on the rock or not. The question is, what kind of house are you building? You see, there is going to be rain, there are going to be floods, and there's going to be wind. Jesus talks about that in his stories. That rain is, is like the loss we face sometimes. It's like the disappointment. It's like that something you've counted on and it's collapsed. Like some people are experiencing financially lately in this country. The flood is like, being, is, is like the world and its desires coming in like a tide and just hurling itself against you and your life and your house. Desires of the world are strong and they pull on us like a tide. And they just want to pull us right out into the ocean, off that foundation. The wind is being like the violent attacks of the enemy. 
the devil attacking us with doubts, with denials, evil thoughts, trying to knock our house down. It'll happen. It'll come against you. But the house that was built upon the only foundation, Jesus, and built by putting into practice his words, will survive the storms of life. Do you want that kind of house? I do. I do. Spiritually, that man is also going to endure God's judgment because of their life being founded in Jesus. You see, there's going to be a storm, a final storm, which is death, and it's going to find us all too. We won't be able to escape us. So Jesus concludes by saying that the man who puts his words into practice is like the wise man who survives the storm. And this last portion of his sermon begins and ends with judgment. We started with that yardstick, the the measure you use will be used to you. And then he ends with this judgment of this storm that comes, an assessment, a final, final call on each man's work, on their life. So Jesus finishes his sermon. And how's it concluded here in chapter seven? It's concluded with a challenge to apply the truth, to apply his teaching. He confronts his followers followers with two possibilities. They must go in in at one or other of two gates. And they're going to walk the narrow way or the broad way. His purpose in ending with the wise, foolish builders is to help us face this choice and to not deny it, to not ignore it, to look at the conclusion. And on the whole, from beginning to end, from the beginning, from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7, Jesus asks us this. Do you want to be made like me? Do you want to be made like me? If your heart and life have been turned upside down by grace, then the answer should be yes. The answer should be yes. Yes, I'm ready to commit myself to follow him down that narrow way. Yes, I'm willing to come to him on his terms, not my own. Yes, I'm willing to follow his ways laid out for me here in his sermon on the mountain. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I know I can't do it on my own, but I'll just ask my father and he'll give me what I need to be able to put this into practice and to follow him. If that's not the case, though, if that's not the case, then it's just time to honestly admit, you know what? I'm just here for God's blessing. I don't really want God. I don't really want to be like Christ. I just want to be comfortable. You see, I, I, I just want to hurry up and build the house so I can sit in my recliner. I want things to be well in this life and the life to come, but I want it on my terms. Just be honest. Admit one or the other. Just be real with them. It's okay. He, he sees our hearts anyway. And so you might as well just come to reality yourself and admit it. And it's okay. And I, I, hope, that, I hope that in that admission, that confession, that it's not a, well, I'm, now I'm going to run away from God. I hope it's a confession saying, God, help me because there's something wrong with my heart here. It's just not in gear with you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to be the center of my life, but you're not. Help me to get there. And then if you are, if you're on the other side, then your confession is this. Yes, Jesus, I say it again. I say it again. I'm yours. Be the center of my life. I want to follow you. Give me what I need to be able to do that, Lord. What you lay out here on the Sermon on the Mount, I know I'm, I'm becoming. 
and you've put that new nature in me to make it possible so I could. But Lord, again, not just at the moment that I gave you my heart and my life at salvation, but Lord, today and every day, I pray that prayer from Romans 12 to, Lord, I give you my life. Offer myself as a living sacrifice. Here's my mind, my intellect. I give to you to be used by you. My heart, fill it up. Enlarge it, Lord, so there's more of you in me. And Lord, here are my hands. Use them wherever I go to touch and be your hands. My feet, take me where you will. Lord, my eyes to see what you see. My ears to hear what you hear. Lord, my mouth to speak what you want me to say or to be silent when you want me to be silent. Lord, I give you all of me, a living sacrifice because you no longer desire dead sacrifices because you made that one sacrifice once and for all at the cross with your son, Jesus. And so he asked us just to crawl up with him on the cross to be that living sacrifice, to take up our cross and follow him, though none go with us. The world behind me, the cross before me, though none go with me, still I will follow. That's the call. That's the choice. That's what he wants of us. And so here we are again on a Sunday. And it's our time, it's our, our moment to regroup, to regather. It's our time to re-pledge ourselves, uh, pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's time to, time to do that. And it's a moment where we, we do that when we take communion together. We're going to do that in this next few moments. There's going to be some people around the perimeter of the room. The guys are going to come up here. They're going to play a song. So they play that song. We, we, we have these people that have a goblet of juice, represents Christ's blood, a plate with uh, this wafer bread that represents his body. We take it, we dip it in the juice, and we take it. And when we take that, it's a confession of our faith. We say, Lord, yes, you are my Lord, my Savior. I believe that you died for me, for my sins. Lord, forgive me. But also, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm following you. It's a, it's a moment. Communion is a strange thing. It's a moment where we hope to meet with God. And sometimes it's a moment where we're confessing, we're repentant. And other times it's a moment where we're rejoicing and we're saying, yes, yes, Lord, thank you for all you've done. And so it's a celebration and it's a time of mourning at the same time. But we want to invite you to participate with us in this. If, if you are ready to say, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my Savior. If not, it's okay to, to watch, to observe. Or if you're here and something has happened and Jesus Christ has worked faith in your heart and you find yourself that you're believing and you want to make this your profession of faith right here today, right now, then I encourage you to take communion and make it your proclamation to the world that you belong to him. So we're going to do that. And then after communion, during that song, you can come up anytime. Parents, I encourage you to do this with your children. Teach them what this means, what you're doing, why you're doing it. But after this, after communion, then there's, there's some more worship. And during that time, it's just a time for you and God. Time for you to re-pledge yourselves to him. To say, yes, I'm yours. Or to be honest and say, Lord, I, I'm just, you're not the center of my life. God, I want you somehow to be the center of my life. Help me. I got the, the straight gate and the wide gate right before me. So this is a moment for, for you and God. And for the rest of you, that it may be just, I'm on the path. Lord, just strengthen me. Strengthen me on the narrow way. The storms have been hitting me, and I need your help. So right now, it's for you and God.